Hello and welcome to the Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me I have Dr. Glenn Woolman, our medical guide here at YHTV. Hello, Glenn. How are you today? Christina, today, pretty exciting. We're going to be talking, although I don't know that everyone thinks it's exciting, but we're going to be talking about a special disease that's been known since ancient times. We read things in uh, Egyptian literature, in the Ayurvedics, uh, in India, the Greeks. Uh, it's about diabetes. And, and right now, the CDC, I think back in uh, 2010, uh, said there were over something like 240 million people in, in the world that uh, have some form of diabetes. And they wow. predict that by uh, 2030, that number will double. The CDC in our country has declared diabetes uh, an epidemic here now. Oh, I know too many people with diabetes, too many. And I, you know, I had learned about other forms that I'd never heard of before, like, like uh, um, what do they call it when, when women are pregnant? Gestational. Gestational diabetes. I had never heard of that before until I was pregnant. <laughs> Luckily, well, I didn't have it. <laughs> it's going to be interesting because we probably will discuss a little of that today. And uh, I have a plan to discuss a type of diabetes that I'm guessing you and a lot of other people may have never heard of before. And I think it will be interesting as we get into it. I'll mm. save that as a surprise uh, for our special guest who is a colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Howard Zisser, who started out in uh, college doing biopharmacy as his study. Then he went on to medical school at Johns Hopkins. He eventually became a specialist in internal medicine where I met him while I was working in the emergency department. He was practicing internal medicine. I can tell you that we loved calling Howard in uh, because he was always responsive to us. He was always uh, responsive to his patients, and they all loved him. And when he went out of the actual practice of medicine and went into research, in diabetic research, I originally felt that uh, his patients uh, will not have benefits of him anymore. But then I realized that by doing research, so many more people will get the benefits of what he does. And we're going to go over that today. So I would like to introduce you and everyone else to my good friend and proud to say colleague, Dr. Howard Zisser. Welcome, Howard. Thank you, Glenn. How are you doing? Hello, Howard. Thank you for being joining us here on the show. Sure, no problem. So did I say everything right about you? <laughs> I think you, uh, you were right on all accounts. Um, uh, I would say when I kind of left my practice of medicine, I was working at the public health department. Um, most of my day was taken up by uh, the treatment and care of people with diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, and to say that it's an epic epidemic is probably an understatement. Mm -hmm. Wow. Do you, think it's, do you think it's a pandemic around the world now? Um, it is, you know, uh, the, the countries that are probably suffering most from it, you know, numbers wise are probably India and China. Um, and a lot of that is, uh, we think from the idea of industrialization, uh, and you have people going from having to work all day in the fields to, uh, get sustenance to working, uh, industrialized, uh, 
jobs where they're they're actually not expending a lot of energy, and there's bountiful uh, amounts of food handy. Um, that tends to be a bad combination. I like to, uh, as a medical guide, I like to give a path that we're going to be going today. So I just want to talk a little bit about your training and uh, why you went in the directions that you did. And then we will look at uh, a number of treatments in diabetes, research in diabetes, but even before that, I want to speak a little bit about diabetes itself. So many people, I think, believe that it's just a problem with sugar, and some people that have it have to take their blood many times a day and test it, and then maybe give them insulin multiple times a day, but they don't realize the consequences long term. So before we get into that, I'm always interested in knowing what made you go into medicine and ultimately internal medicine and then into research? Give us a little history of you, Howard. Oh, okay. I'll give you a brief history. Um, you know, a lot of people that I was in school with, um, you know, you get the history of, you know, ever since I was four or five years old, I always wanted to be a doctor or uh, I had this bad illness. I had scoliosis and they put in this hardware and it really changed my life. So I, I, became interested in that. And I really didn't have that. Um, my drive was really uh, driven more by, um, I think, science and um, figuring out things that are unknown. So when I started in undergrad, I, I was not, uh, not pre-med, but I ended up being in a lot of classes that uh, the pre-med students were in and seemed to do pretty good. So I kind of um, went along that path and ended up working in the Department of Pharmacology at um, the medical school in Gainesville. And uh, I decided to go to medic medical school from there. And then that's how I ended up uh, at Hopkins. Um, after that, um, you know, I, I, we have summer interns and we have visiting students here periodically. And I often tell them that, you know, a lot of things in life are, are um, decided by very small conversation. So a lot of the, the decisions in my life were actually guided by a telephone call or two. Uh, and one was um, the decision to come here to Santa Barbara. Actually, I was just going to come here for a year and do a year of intern, internal medicine and go into ophthalmology, but I decided to stay. Um, and then about 10 years later, after I did work in emergency rooms and internal medicine, uh, I got a call that there was an opening at um, Samson Diabetes Research. And um, I ended up calling. It was a Saturday. I was trying to um, reach Lois Yovanovich, who was the director, and um, thought I could call to, to get the operator. And, of course, um, she's been a dedicated researcher for a number of decades, and she was here. And um, we talked, and that was about 10 years ago. And so for the last 10 years, I've been working in all fields of diabetes, um, primarily in type 1 diabetes, which I'll explain in a bit, um, working on new devices, working on uh, new medications, new injectables, new orals. And one of our latest projects is actually trying to figure out how to automate insulin delivery to make an artificial pancreas. Well, this is going to be a great ending to our conversation, and let's keep the beginning going. First, let's tell people about uh, diabetes itself. Give us a, a brief summary and why 
it's so important when we have an opportunity. I mean, certainly there's genetics involved with some types of diabetes, but there, there seems to be the possibility that many of us can prevent type 2 diabetes, and yet more and more of us are coming down with this. Uh, tell, tell us about diabetes itself and try and include why we should be thinking about things to prevent it in ourselves. Okay, I'll, I'll try to cover that briefly. Um, I, let me just step back a little bit. Diabetes is, in general, a problem with glucose metabolism. So for some reason, the glucose levels aren't normal. And when the glucose levels aren't normal, uh, over time, that can cause long-term complications. Um, the glucose tends to be toxic to the blood vessels. Fortunately or unfortunately, the blood vessels go everywhere, so people can end up with problems in strokes, uh, retinopathy or problems with their vision, heart attacks, renal disease, kidneys. Um, they can end up with nerve damage and amputations. So first of all, we have to figure out you know, why um, there's a problem with glucose metabolism. So there's two main classes of diabetes. One is called type 1 diabetes. It used to be called juvenile diabetes or insulin-dependent diabetes. Now, this usually affects um, children or adolescent patients, but can affect adults. And what happens is usually these patients will have a genetic predisposition. They may be exposed to a virus in the environment and their own immune system attacks the cells that make insulin. So for, for all intents and purposes, they don't make insulin anymore, and insulin is needed to get sugar into the cells to, to be used as a fuel. And so prior to 19, uh, early 1920s, when Banty and Bess um, in Canada figured out the whole insulin story and were able to purify it, these patients actually became very sick because they, even though they were eating, they couldn't use the fuels um, to, you know, hold on to calories and to, to create energy. Um, and these patients usually got very sick and uh, died very quickly. And so with the advent of insulin in the early 1920s, um, and a lot of people don't know it locally, but Dr. Sansom here in Santa Barbara was the first physician to purify and give insulin in Santa Barbara, and uh, actually in the whole United States here in Santa Barbara in 1922. Type two diabetes, um, which used to be called uh, adult onset or non-insulin dependent diabetes, is confusing because some of those patients require insulin, is a problem with insulin resistance. So the patients usually make insulin, but over time as they age, maybe as they gain weight, uh, or in, in certain genetic uh, populations, the body doesn't listen to the insulin. And what happens is initially the, the body can make more and more insulin, but eventually the pancreas says, you know, I can't make that much more insulin. And it, slowly their insulin levels drop and their glucose levels rise. So they're very different diseases with a very common pathway of a, a dysregulation in glucose metabolism. And they are, are, are treated in different ways as well. There's some commonalities, but... Um, they're definitely unique disease states. Let's talk about the concept of the disease state. There are certain people that have a genetic propensity for it, and there are other people that develop it because of lifestyle. Would you agree with that? 
Well, I mean, it's definitely multifactorial. Um, there are some people um, that can gain a lot of weight and never develop diabetes, and there are some people that can be at normal weight and develop diabetes over time. Um, there's definitely um, certain genetic populations. There's a population of uh, Pima Indians in Arizona, and they actually have the world's highest prevalence um, of type 2 diabetes. So almost everybody, if you have Pima Indian and you're in Arizona, you develop type 2 diabetes. It's interesting, there's a, a collection of, uh, or a population of uh, Pima Indians in Mexico that are not on the reservation or kind of um, living off the land, and they have a very low incidence and prevalence of type 2 diabetes. So there is a, a definite genetic component, but there's also an environmental and behavioral component that goes along with it as well. Um, there was some recent studies trying to prevent diabetes, and, and they took a population that had prediabetes. So the blood sugar wasn't normal, but it wasn't um, uh, definitive to have that they had type 2 diabetes. And they put them in three different groups. One of the groups was they did nothing. The other group, they put on a medication called metformin, which uh, improves the insulin sensitivity in the body. And then the other population, they actually put on an exercise program. And the patients that were on the exercise program did very well. The medicated patients did okay. And um, the third, third population was there really just as a, a control group. Um, and now they're looking into things of exercise, um, in combination with medications earlier to try to prevent some of the complications of type 2 diabetes. So now, as far as type 1 diabetes, sorry, type 1 diabetes is really uh, a genetic and environmental component. There is um, not much in the way of um, anything that you can do to prevent that if you uh, if you are you have that genetic predisposition and you get some environmental trigger. Is there any way of figuring out these triggers and looking at uh, more of the lifestyle changes? You spoke about exercise and uh, nutrition. Are there any other things, stress management? Uh, I know that we're, we're looking at the cells that actually produce uh, the insulin from the pancreas, and there seems to be some research about those cells being stressed. Are there things other than diet and exercise that we can do, getting sleep? Uh, and also, are there other types of healers that we can look at that might help us, say, acupuncture or traditional Asian medicine or uh, homeopathy, for example? Um, yeah. So let, let me go start with type 1 diabetes. There's a, a trial called TrialNet, and they look at relatives of people that have type 1 diabetes. And um, for these patients, they actually check genetic markers. So they can actually uh, look at the genetic markers and they can say who has the highest risk of developing diabetes. It doesn't mean that they will develop diabetes, but they've shown uh, over a number of years that those patients definitely have the highest risk. So when you're looking at that population, um, they are looking at this population in case they come up with preventative strategies. And they've tried a couple. They've tried some oral insulin and some low dose of, of uh, injected insulin in this high risk population. And 
they didn't find that it actually prevented anything currently, but they do have other compounds that are being considered for these uh, prevention trials. As far as two, type 2 diabetes, what you really need is, um, well, first you need awareness and education. Um, if you have type 1 diabetes, you will get sick pretty quickly. Um, usually the symptoms are something we call polyuria polydipsia where you're uh, urinating a lot because of the high sugar levels, and then you're thirsty, so you're drinking a lot. So you set up this kind of loop of going to the bathroom, drinking, going to the bathroom, drinking. Um, in type two, 2 diabetes, the onset is much slower. So you don't get as sick as quickly. But if you don't know about it, if you're not going to the doctor you know, every year or every couple of years to have your blood sugar checked, then you won't know about it. And sometimes these patients will present to the emergency room with the complications of diabetes and the patients didn't even know that they had them. Um, as far as other things you can do, really diet is the most important thing. Uh, trying to limit carbohydrate. Um, carbohydrate is pretty much in everything these days. Um, we have nutrition classes that are free here every Thursday at noon. We also have some um, bilingual classes in some of the neighborhood clinics. And the patients that come here actually get great results because um, when I was in practice, a lot of times people would show up and say, almost, can you fix me? You know, give me a pill, make me better. And it's not quite that simple. You have to change things in your lifestyle. You have to change what you eat. You have to get out there and move quite a bit more. As far as uh, what we would consider uh, adjunctive or um, in the West, non-traditional therapies, um, there probably is some promise. Um, I think um, more in the treatment of the whole patient, and if you're feeling better about yourself, you're more likely to do uh, good things for yourself. Um, but I don't, I can't speak to any particular therapy that has been uh, uh, shown to change the, the glucose levels in these patients. What is it that, uh you do particularly with your patients or did with your patients when you would talk to them and have that discussion about lifestyle changes and diet. We all know about that intellectually, and some of them do listen and make the changes and are better off for it, but so many of them don't seem to want to make those changes at a time when they have the ability to uh, prevent something. And eventually they get the disease and then they become very conscious and start doing these things. Is there anything that you have learned that will help people change without having to get hit in the head? Uh, I don't think I've ever hit anybody in the head, Glenn, but. That was um, a metaphor. A metaphor, okay. Uh, you know, it's very difficult. You know, um, it's kind of the old dog, new trick kind of thing. Um, you know, we get set in our life patterns. Um, our nutrition and meals are not just connected to ourselves, they're connected to our family and our social circles. Um, in these prevention trials, they actually had, um, they had to do, do a lot of work to make sure these patients showed up to do their exercise. Um, and so it's not easy. And this is why it's important to get education, um, both online, from reputable uh, sites, but also from diabetes educators, nutritionists. And it almost takes kind of a, a team approach. You have to get buy-in from the family because a lot of times 
one of the parents has type 2 and they want to change the meals, but they're the one that's cooking for everybody else in the family. So it's it takes persistence and hard work, basically, in a, in a team-like approach. I understand. Uh, just as a quick question about gestational diabetes, to move off of one and two for a moment, if a woman uh, has either a family history of diabetes, but she's never had it, are her chances more likely to get gestational diabetes when pregnant? And the second question is, if someone had gestational diabetes during a pregnancy, will that potentially happen during future pregnancies again? So, I mean, I think the question is, um, I mean, I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, you know, there are certain populations that have higher incidence uh, and prevalence of type 2 diabetes and also gestational diabetes. Once a woman has um, gestational diabetes, the risk for converting to type 2 diabetes is higher. Almost, you know, I think, uh, I don't know the exact numbers, probably 15% per year. Um, their risk of having gestational diabetes again with their next pregnancy is also quite high. Um, the current treatment that we're using for that is actually we start with diet. If you can eliminate a lot of the carbohydrate, um, usually a lot of these patients may not need to go on insulin. But if they, what we call failed diet therapy or diet restriction, then they actually have to go on insulin. And it's a very interesting population because you, have, you know, you're treating two, maybe sometimes three if there's a twin pregnancy, but the patients tend to be very motivated. Um, because they're they're carrying uh, their unborn child. So I have a question about that, Howard. Um, because I had never heard of gestational diabetes until I was pregnant, and um, I I know the the doctor had said that uh, out of all the tests, I should have that one, which is which is fine. You know, was <laughs> I didn't have a lot of the tests when I was pregnant, so that was one that ah, that's not a problem. That's not a big deal. You know, I'll I'll do it. And he had told me then that. About 90% of his patients had gestational diabetes. I almost fell over, and I was like, that's crazy. I'd never heard of that before. And then to find out that all these young mothers, because I was an older mom, <laughs> all these young girls were coming down with this, even if they didn't have a history. Now, is it because of a change in diet or a hormonal change? I mean, why do people develop um, gestational diabetes? Well, uh, um, yes. Well, I mean, it also may have been, you know, the population of people that your doctor was serving, because mm -hmm. um, there are definitely certain populations that have higher incidence of uh, gestational diabetes. Um, primarily, there is a uh, compound that is manufactured in the placenta that... Um, uh, makes the insulin in the mother's body less effective. Uh, so usually, most of the time, not all the time, as soon as you deliver, the gestational diabetes goes away. Um, but it's really important to get uh, a six-week follow-up check to make sure that the, the blood sugars have normalized. Um, and it's something that um, has really been refined probably how we diagnose it and how we treat it over the last 40 years. 
And this is something that Dr. Yovanovitch that I work with is really a pioneer in the whole field. Um, the problem is, is if the uh, diabetes is not treated, and usually in the, the late second and uh, definitely for most of the third trimester, if the blood sugars are high in the mother, then the blood sugars are high in the fetus, and the mm -hmm. fetus can put on a lot of weight, and you end up getting a big baby at delivery, which mm -hmm. can cause uh, birth trauma both to the mother and to the baby. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's something that we really have to pay attention to and have a very focused treatment plan uh, for those uh, three or four months. Now, does it affect the child? Like, will the child end up with diabetes as well, or is it just during that birth, that birthing time? Well, that's a very good question. No, it uh, it seems to um, the uh, intrauterine um, environment definitely affects the future of the child, and mm -hmm. uh, if there is untreated gestational diabetes, uh, the risk goes up of the, the child developing uh, type two diabetes as an adult. Oh my goodness. So we've we've spoken now about type 1 diabetes, <clears throat> type 2 diabetes, and gestational diabetes. I'd like to bring up another type of diabetes that not too many people are talking about, but I predict in the future we'll be speaking of a lot more. Type 3 diabetes. Howard, are you doing any uh, research in type 3 diabetes? And would you uh, explain? I'm not, I'm not doing any type 3. Um, and I may ask you to clarify a little bit more because there are, are all kinds of classifications. We do talk about sometimes with people that have type one and a half. So they may have um, type one diabetes where they don't make much or any insulin, but they also have insulin resistance because of their uh, age or weight or genetic predisposition. So could you clarify that a little bit, Glenn? Sure. I was talking, uh, I was at a talk with an endocrinologist who was speaking and stating that, as we know, insulin is used by the cells to help with the glucose. It now appears that the brain is also uh, producing insulin, and they're starting to make a connection between diabetes and dementia and Alzheimer's, and they're potentially thinking of the possibility that type 3 diabetes is uh, what is one of, at least one of the causes or contributing factor to dementia and Alzheimer's. Well, um, you know, I don't know much about that field. I do know that they have um, published some recent studies using intranasal insulin uh, to treat uh, mild to moderate dementia. Um, and they are starting to get some positive um, results, um, but again, not my area of uh, expertise. Well, then let's move on to uh, intranasal insulin. Uh, I think at one point a few years ago, they were starting to do that, and then maybe some of the pharmaceutical companies took it off the market because it, it was too expensive, and there are a number of reasons. But you're doing research now in that area also, aren't you? Yeah, so the problem is is that, um, or one of the problems is that the current insulins uh, aren't really fast enough. So even though we had traditional insulin, then we had uh, recombinant genetically manufactured insulin, and then we have something called analogs where they would change some of the amino acids in the insulin to get it either to be faster or slower. We still don't have a really ultra-fast insulin. 
So we're doing actually a number of studies. Um, we haven't done any intranasal. We did do a, a it's called a buccal or buccal mucosa, which is the inside of the cheek, and that you would use an inhaler type thing, but you have to use a lot of force to get it across the cheek. So we didn't find that worked very well. There was an inhaled uh, insulin called Exubra uh, by Pfizer, and that was on the market for a while. I think one of the problems is they they marketed to the endocrinologist and probably should have marketed more to family practice doctors and internists. Um, the device itself was big, so it was a little clunky to use, um, but fairly effective. Uh, there's a new company, well, not so new, a, a company called Mankind, um, run by Al Mann in um, they have developed an inhaled insulin that has an insulin powder that is a powder um, when it's in the device, but as soon as it touches the, the pH of the lung, it changes into a liquid form and gets in quite quickly. And for type 2 diabetes, um, this is a very effective treatment because what you're doing is you're taking that insulin when you eat, and it gets in right away, and it tells the liver, hey, I'm going to eat now, stop putting sugar into my bloodstream, and start sh storing sugar into the liver. A very effective therapy. They're in the uh, the last phases of their uh, preclinical or clinical trials, uh, and hopefully they will get approved in the next uh, year or two. Um, we also have some trials that we're conducting, and um, we we've done some here, and we're doing some in France where we deliver insulin into the belly, so into the peritoneum, and that's because the insulin goes directly to the liver. Um, where it needs to be going uh, in the first place. So that way we have better control of the glucose fluctuation, um, and this will be helpful as we move into the artificial pancreas project that we're working on. The insulin pumps that people were using, uh, there are a number of people using insulin pumps now. Uh, many of the people complain that it certainly helps them, but they're big and clunky and they're not too attractive or are they working on a smaller pump, or is are we looking more to the uh, pancreas that you're talking about? Um, well, there's a number of devices. I mean, they all pretty much function the same and as a pump. Uh, the advantage is, is um, if you're not on a pump, you're taking a long-acting and a short-acting insulin. If you're on a pump, and this is primarily for type 1 diabetes, but using for type 2 diabetes as well, um, if you take a long-acting insulin, that insulin is always there and um, working. So if you have exercise or if you're not eating at the right times, it may not balance out with what's happening in your life. So if you're on an insulin pump, it's really just pumping short-acting insulin all the time. Um, you can vary the times of day that you eat. You can take the pump off periodically if you're going to be exercising. Um, and most of them about the same size. Uh, there's a couple of uh, actually, a lot of companies that are working on making it smaller and making it kind of a disposable pump as opposed to um, uh, a permanent pump. Um, it may work better for people's lifestyles, probably not great for the environment. Um, but it gives patients uh, a sense of control over their diabetes and their and their glucose. Um, some people just don't like to be connected to anything. Most people, once they've tried it, um, really appreciate the control that they have. Um, it's not for everyone, but uh, 
I, again, I can't quote the numbers, but probably 40%, if not more, of type 1 patients are using pumps currently. In a, thank you. Uh, in a future show, we're going to be talking with uh, Dr. Gary Winston, who will talk to us about endocrine disruptors. And the pancreas is an endocrine gland, and diabetes is partially an endocrine problem. I'm wondering your thoughts as a research scientist whether or not there are things out there, products that we're using for one purpose, uh, like a deodorant or a toothpaste or a, a soap or something, a sunscreen that may have uh, compounds in them that may be toxic and disrupting our system, which may be causing diabetes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh... Short answer is probably no. I mean, I'm a. Um, my wife is a physician, um, and she's very Eastern. She does uh, physical medicine rehab, and acupuncture is primarily her focus currently. I tend to be very Western, and uh, I kind of need hard evidence. Um, I mean, until um, you can show me what has happened with a specific um, compound. In a specific population, uh, it tends to be speculation, and um, you know, I'm sure there's things out there that aren't good for us. But to speculate and say, "Well, this might be bad, and this might be bad," we really have to wait until there's hard evidence to show that um, there's a certain compound that has certain um, influences in our um, bodies. Clearly, uh, we'll have to have uh, your wife on. <laughs> as she'll, yeah, she'll tell you something completely different. <laughs> Boy, I'd love to be around during their dinner conversations, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting. Um, I have a, a question, Howard, because um, I was just at a natural products expo, and it happens once a year on both coasts. And they come up with a lot of different products and, you know, whatever is uh, up and coming, etc., and they've come up, uh, there's a company that was displaying uh, quite a realm of sugars, natural sugars, so to say, or raw sugars, as they might call it. Um, and they were saying that, I guess, the, the glucose levels, I don't know how, I don't know what term that they use, but it, it was much lower than the refined sugar that you would, the white sugar that you would buy in the store. Have yeah. you heard about that? And, and, and is there a big difference for someone who is a diabetic, um, especially with a type 2, uh, yeah. that so, they're changing their diet? Do these help? or? So, um, again, I, you, your audio is interrupted a little bit, but I think of what you're saying is are different sugars absorbed at different rates, uh, and will that mm -hmm. influence somebody's blood sugar? I think the answer is yes. There's something called a glycemic index. That's it. Yes. That, um, you know, there's basically when we eat, there are three things. Well, probably four things. Um, one is protein. So that would be something like, you know, pure chicken breast or steak. Uh, fat, which could be, you know, butter, lard, animal fat, whatever. And then there's sugars. But there's all different types of sugars. Mm -hmm. um, and they probably are all do have different absorption rates and some can get in quite quickly and sometimes we need that if somebody's blood sugar is low we need to get their blood sugar up we like to have um, uh, a quick um, release sugar type thing 
And then there's, you know, potatoes and fruits and grains and um, uh, things that have fiber in them. And they all have different absorption rates. And they're a published list on, on how things um, get absorbed into the body. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think it's very variable and probably something that individual patients should actually look at. Um, uh, we have a saying around here, you know, a carb is a carb is a carb. And so if you can limit the carbs, and then you can have carbs that seem to work for you. And we have uh, new devices now um, that we were actually the first ones to test this probably about six or seven years ago, a continuous glucose monitor. Mm-hmm. So it's basically the same chemistry that's on a, a strip that people use to check their blood. And they put on a wire and that goes under the skin and is replaced about every week and can give uh, an approximation of what the blood sugar is doing every five minutes. So you can have something to eat and you can change you know, the type of sugar you're eating and you can actually see how fast you're going up and how fast you're going mm-hmm. down. So the technology is changing quite rapidly in this field. Um, so, so, but you, you wouldn't know if the difference between, like, for example, uh, maple syrup or uh, what they're, everyone's going for now, the agave nectar or the stevia root, you know, uh, you know they're sweet. At least it gives a little sweetness. But, but are those good substitutes for diabetic? I mean, um, well, you know, when you get into... Um, there's the whole field of sugar alcohols and, um, you know, aspartame, which is a protein. There's actually three amino acids stuck together. Um, anything you do for people with type 1 diabetes to limit, and type 2 as well, to limit their carbohydrate intake is probably good. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's going to be have to be tested on the individual. I see. Mm. Thank you. I would, also, mm-hmm. I would also add that with some of these natural products like the agaves and the stevias, it's also very uh, important to be careful and recognize whether or not they've gone through a processing of their own to go from a plant in the field to your table. Mm -hmm. So sometimes, although it's a natural uh, element, by the time they get it to where you could put it in, in your food, it may go through processing, which may or may not be a good for us either. Mm-hmm. Howard, yeah. So, uh, yeah. In, your, in your research area, I, you know, diabetes has been around for a long time. I have friends, family members that have lived on insulin uh, for 50, 60 years now. They're living relatively good lives because of it. And then we combine that with the fact that there's going to be more diabetes. In your research, do we have any hope? Um, of course we have hope. Otherwise, there wouldn't be, uh, we do on this. Uh, you know, the, the way we treat diabetes is tremendously different than it was, you know, five years ago. We have all kinds of new compounds. Before, it was mainly trying to get insulin in. Now there's, you know, insulin sensitizers and uh, GLP-1 and DPP-4 and all these other compounds that are really helping out. Uh, Again, I think the key is education, knowing your body, knowing what works for you, um, going to the physician every three months, every six months is not going to fix you. You know, you need to talk to them, ask all the questions that you have. And 
then you have to figure out how it's going to work with you and your family. Um, there, um, yeah, I think I, I, I'll just leave it at that. Good. I, I always ask uh, my guests, based on your experience and wisdom throughout your years of practice, for a health tip. So do you have something for us uh, health that tip. Uh, nobody else knows about? Uh, I'm sure I know something that nobody else knows about. Um, Can we know about it, though? <laughs> I know about it. Well, that means I have to register what it is in, in, in health tip. You know, again, I, I think... Um, I think the be the best health tip from me is to get education about what's going on in your particular case, um, learning as much as you can, and then trying to incorporate that into your life. It's not easy, but otherwise it's like, you know, sticking your head in the sand and, and hoping mm -hmm. things will go away. And that's probably not the best therapy. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm uh, grateful to my special guest, Dr. Howard Zisser, for uh, sharing his wisdom and experience with us. Thank you, Howard, Great. for joining us today. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Christina, it was uh, great to speak with Howard today. Uh, he really does know a lot about diabetes, mm -hmm. but one of the things I'm always curious about after our guests leave is, from your opinion, what people listening got out of the show oh so. for, for me i mean being the forever student you know um i always get mixed up on the type 1 and type 2 diabetes and and the definitions of each of those but as i i said to you at the beginning of the show this gestational diabetes just blew me away you know when, when i guess when we are not set in the um opportunity to be in the place of possibly can uh you know having something come up such as that you just don't hear about it you know uh, people don't tend to talk about it i don't hear a lot of moms talking about it out there so so that was a really wonderful time for me to just hear and uh, some feedback from him about what that is all about i'm i'm sure my doctor had mentioned it to me back then, you know, so many years ago. But of course, as I say, you know, I, I get all the different levels of diabetes all mixed up. Um, but I, I have, it's, I have not, you know, growing up, you heard of the occasional person having diabetes. Um, I could remember maybe one or two students out of, you know, elementary school or high school may have had it. And then uh, with the older generation, when I think, uh, you know, uncles, aunts, things like that, when they hit about 70s, was 80s, was when I actually heard, you know, oh, a little bit. And they just had to watch their diet a little bit then. I mean, now it seems rampant in all age groups. And it's, it's you know, what, is it our fast food? Is it um, our lack of um, awareness in, in what we're eating at home, uh, even though the TV dinners and things like that are, are seen to be getting healthier. You know, what, what do you think, Glenn, is, is bringing this up at such a rate? Well, there's a number of things that you brought up, so let me try and cover them simply <laughs> and get to everything. The first thing, just to simplify it for you and for other people and of course this is simplified 
remembering that we go to medical school, go through internships, residencies, uh, years and years and years of study. And even then, we're always learning more and more. Mm -hmm. But for the simplified version, type 1 diabetes uh, is the most serious. It usually happens when you're younger. And that's the one that requires insulin. And the reason you have type 1 diabetes is there's a, a defect in the ability to produce insulin. That's this. That's the simple definition. Type two diabetes, as a very simple definition, is that the the cells uh, decrease their efficiency to use or take the insulin in, which doesn't allow the glucose to go in and then be used. The glucose is essentially uh, gasoline for the cells. Hmm can't run your car without gasoline. You can't run your cells without glucose. That's how we, we break down glucose that forms high energy bonds. Mm -hmm. And those high energy bonds allow us to lift our hand to take a drink of water, go to the store, or play in an athletic event. So type one is lack of production. Type two is uh, an inability to use the insulin well. Mm -hmm. Uh, we talked a little before, or the word was mentioned, gly glycemic index. And that gives us an idea of how quickly foods break down, mainly glucose or carbohydrates break down from the time they hit the stomach. The test was that they would give someone a dose of glucose. I think it was usually an oral dose of glucose. They would measure after that, over periods of time, how high the glucose went in the body, in the blood and plasma, mm -hmm. how quickly it came back down again, they would measure insulin levels. And from that, they would then test various foods. And the ones that came closest to pure glucose had the highest glycemic index of a glycemic index of, say, 100 or and something that went in very slowly compared to just pure glucose got a low glycemic index, but that's only one part of the process. The other and maybe more important part is what they call, and most people don't speak about often, is the glycemic load. Hmm. So yep, when you never heard of it. <laughs> right. And that's why there's a magical medical cure. So when you speak of the glycemic index, let's say something like a carrot, it may have a very high glycemic index means the second you eat it, it goes in as quickly as glucose and it raises the glucose very quickly and it causes insulin reactions, etc. But in order to keep something specific and scientific, you had to have equal amounts so you weren't measuring carrots and glucose. <laughs> you were measuring the same thing. So in order to make it equivalent, you would actually have to have maybe a few pounds of carrots to equal the actual process. So even though a glycemic index food or vegetable may be high, like glucose, if you only had one bite of a carrot, it would not cause the same effect mm -hmm. as having the total equivalent dose of it. Mm -hmm. And now to the other question that you brought up about what's going on out there in the world. That's why I brought up uh, the concept of it being an epidemic and the CDC or the Center for Disease Control is saying that there's possibility by the year 2030, we will double our amount of insulin. 
I believe that it is partly our diet. I also believe that it's partly our lifestyle and environment. And I think we will have a discussion about endocrine blockers and toxins that are out there in our foods and in uh, our uh, products that we use for healthcare, like I said, maybe in our soaps and detergents, number of other things that may have these little hidden long syllable mono or multisyllabic <laughs> uh, words that that have these chemicals that may potentially be endocrine disruptors, which may be destroying genes that produce the cell that produce insulin, mm -hmm. or that when the insulin uh, comes in and starts being used, there may be a blocker on the cell from something that we're rubbing on ourselves for a different purpose that may be blocking the actual use and connection so we won't get the most benefits. I think as we go more into the genome and epigenetics, which we speak about a lot, I believe we're going to find out more and more of these answers. And Howard and his staff doing their research in diabetes and other researchers around the uh, world are doing their research. We're going to find out a lot more answers. And when we mm -hmm. do, then it will become the question and the responsibility of doing something about it. For example, if we know that there's a toxin in a, a food that we eat, what are we going to do about getting that out? Or at least, if we can't get it out, at least letting the public know that it is there, and then you get to make your own choices. And also, I, I, I what the question I have is, what are some of the symptoms or signs that people should look out for? I mean, like with a child, how how would you know? How would you know as a parent? What are the signs? Is it lethargic? Is it, you know, no, no focus? The first, the first symptoms and the most obvious symptoms are the ones that Howard brought up where it's somebody who's urinating quite a bit. So if you see a child or if you feel yourself urinating quite a bit, that's part of what we always call a differential diagnosis. The problem could be something in your bladder or kidneys, mm -hmm. but in case it's combined with a number of other things like a, an increased thirst. And those two are the first two things that we look for. Then you start looking at alters, alterations in consciousness. When the glucose goes too high in the emergency department, we would see people coming in in a coma. Wow. And if the glucose goes too low, we would see people coming in in a coma. So it was very challenging for us because people in a coma can't come in and say, I'm a diabetic and I just took my insulin and I forgot to eat with it. So therefore, my blood glucose is down to six. Mm. Or on the other hand, uh, somebody just stopped taking their glucose and went on a binge and eating lots of sugary things and carbohydrates and their glucose goes up to 1100 rather than somewhere about 70 or 80 or 90. Mm -hmm. So both of them can come in in a coma. But before that, you see alterations in mood, uh, alterations in thought process. It can start affecting vision, it can start affecting mm -hmm. kidneys, heart. But the, the first 
step usually has to do with uh, the drinking, and I'll take a drink right now. Uh, drinking more and urinating more. And then sometimes the, the I mentioned before that the ancient Greeks and the Indians and the uh, Chinese and the Egyptians, they all recognized that the urine was sweeter than most people. And the word mellitus, you've heard the word, I guess, diabetes mellitus, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? Yes. It has to do with uh, honey. And what they, what they saw was that the urine actually attracted ants. Mm. So that gave them an indicator. And that's what the ancients used to determine diabetes. Another thing that happens, and maybe a subtle clue, is um, the inability to release an infection or to heal. Excuse me. <coughs> Sometimes, because as Howard said, the microvascular part of our body where all the blood vessels thin down and go right to the actual organs or out to the skin, get damaged and they can't bring nutrients. So um, you get less healing. So if you have a sore that lasts for a long time, that, my throat is going here. Can you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> You need uh, more water. I have to have an ear, nose, and throat doctor come in for our next talk. <laughs> no, we have to get Ms. Zisser, Zisser in. <laughs> yes, her, her talk will be completely different because she does physical medicine, and uh, she also is an acupuncturist, so she looks at things completely differently. Although she is an MD, she has that Western and an Eastern approach, so... It'll be interesting to speak with her. That will be very interesting, yes. And her approach to diabetes. <laughs> right. And her approach to Dr. Howard Zisser. Yes. <laughs> so I wonder if we should ever uh, bring Segovia in on these conversations and see what he learned. He's a technical guy. Uh, absolutely. Well, I think now and then he does ask his little questions and he scoots them in here and there. <laughs> I mean, I'm a pretty healthy guy. Um, I consider myself to be such. And, you know, I, I'm not overweight. And I used to think diabetes was something you had to be overweight in order to, you know, develop diabetes. Now, again, I'm pretty foggy in the, the contrast between type 1 and type 2. What you just described really helped to get some of the basics. But is is a I've over the last ten years or so I've found more and more frequently that I've seen guys skinny as a rail developing diabetes or younger people you know that are in their teens developing diabetes that look healthy they're you know six foot five basketball star athletes but they're getting you know one of these two types now I don't know which is more frequent in you know skinny you know thin type individuals um, but w what kind of things could I maybe you could have some clarity around that as well as what kind of things can someone who is thin and, you know, how would someone like that develop diabetes? What can I do to prevent, you know, getting and developing? Because I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to be in that 20, 30 uh, statistic that, you know, I'm one of the, the, the insulin subscribers out there. So how can I prevent that over the next 10 or 20 years? That's a very good question. Uh, just to reiterate again, type one would be, 
uh, a lack of production of insulin. Type 2 would be a resistance to the production of insulin. And both have variations. Usually the thin person gets to type 1 and there's a genetic component to that. Uh, type 2 probably is more metabolic and environmental. So the things that you can do are, again, to have a very good lifestyle, which doesn't include just diet and exercise. Stress management, I, I talked about stress because stress can affect other parts of the endocrine system. And the endocrine system is a system. So all of the glands... Wait, in wait, the wait. The endocrine system, is that something like uh, beyond Pluto, like in the galaxy? Um, which which solar galaxy. system are we talking about here? It's in a galaxy near, near, and close. <laughs> it's inside of your skin. The, just like there's the cardiovascular system, which would be the heart and blood vessels. There's the digestive system, which would be the mouth, the teeth, the esophagus, stomach, intestines, etc. There is the neuro system, which is brain and spine, spinal cord, peripheral nerves. There's an endocrine system, and this system includes most of the glands in the body. And you've heard of most of these glands. You've heard of the thyroid gland. You've heard of the pituitary gland. You've heard of the adrenal glands, right? So these are some of the glands that make up the endocrine system. So they're connected to the all of the other systems, and it's a feedback mechanism. If you're at home and you're tired and you have to go out and do something and you need some energy, sometimes you can psych your mind up and your mind will send a message to your adrenal gland and it'll pump out a little bit of adrenaline so you get up and get uh, geared up to do something. But over time, uh, the adrenaline wears away and then you're slow again. So each of the different glands produces hormones that help to balance our body, help us with digestion, help us with mood, help us with thought, help us with energy, everything, including the secondary glands helping us <clears throat> in going through menstrual cycles and pregnancy, etc. So these are all of the things that are part of the endocrine system. And that system is very complex. One of the things that we're going to be talking about, which is of concern to more and more scientists today, is what's going on that's causing this problem of the increase. And it's not the genetic thing, it's more the metabolic process. So there are things in our foods, in our environment, our stresses, our lack of sleep that can cause this. So the things that you can do, as you ask the question, one, is to maintain a good and healthy lifestyle, getting sleep, stress management, exercise, and good exercise and good nutrition. That's one area. Number two is periodically getting a checkup from your doctor. And this may not just include a test for your blood sugar, just to see what the glucose level is, because that's a good screen, but there's also a new test out called a hemoglobin A1C. And this, this is almost like the time machine or a backup system in your computer. It sort of registers how your glucose has gone up and down over a few day period. And we can now look at that as a test and say, 
even though your glucose that we took today uh, looks normal, your A1C shows that over the past few days or week, it's gone up quite a bit. Remember, whenever anyone takes a blood test or an x-ray, it's really a snapshot of that moment. So if you happen to get a moment when you're taking blood and someone's glucose, which was very high, is starting to drop back into a normal range, you may get a false sense of, oh, it's normal. But if you took it 20 minutes before or a half hour before, it may have been quite high, which would have been given the indicator that you may have to get some special tests. And after the hemoglobin A1C, if your doctor feels that you might have uh, the potential for diabetes based on history, family history, or based on your diet, or based on symptoms, then we have other tests that we can do, such as a fasting blood sugar or a glucose tolerance test. You may have heard that word before, where you go into the doctor or to a clinic or to a lab, and they inject you. First, they take a blood test to get your fasting or your normal blood sugar. Then they inject you with a certain amount of controlled glucose, and then they start taking measurements uh, over periods of time, multiple periods of time. And with normal people, we've developed a pattern. Your glucose should go up to this height, and then within this amount of time, it should be starting to come down, and by this amount of time, it should be back to normal. That's for a person that has normal insulin production and no resistance. If a person has a type 1 diabetes with decreased insulin production or with type 2 diabetes with insulin resistance, their pattern after injecting the glucose will be completely different. And we've got enough scientific evidence to say you fit into this pattern. So that's the next thing that has to be done. First is the lifestyle. Second is uh, the checkups. Uh, with your doctor and have good communication. Make sure you always have a medical guide with you uh, to make sure that you're speaking appropriately with a doctor and asking all the right questions and understanding the answers. The next part has to do with, uh, again, with science and getting involved with communities, local communities. For example, making sure there are organic uh, markets and even in that area, we're finding out now that sometimes, uh, I just read an article the other day that said the USDA can determine and label something organic, and it may have compounds in it that are not organic and that are not necessarily good for us. So there is an awareness that has to come from each of us as an individual and then as a group to speak to our local governments and national government and uh, people that are producing our foods and transporting our foods, people that are producing the uh, things that we use on our bodies and around our bodies and around our house. When we have weeds in our garden, we may want to use something and suddenly that's going up into the wind and now we're inhaling it. And it's, it's used to be killing weeds, and it's very toxic, and now we just inhaled it. Did that do anything to me? Should I be concerned? These are the things that we also have to worry about. So I hope that answered your question. Uh, oh, my goodness. This, uh, yes, this diabetes, I tell you, um, 
it, there's so much to learn, isn't there? This wonderful, ah, it's medic, medicine is a mystery, Glenn. And as you say, it's, it's forever research, forever the unveiling and unfolding, because so many things change. As you say, they come up with a new pesticides or they come up with new chemicals well that affects us in the air and then something else shows up in our bodies you know that there's that cause and effect that starts to happen and truly it's it's like medicine goes on and will continue to go on forever <laughs> you're in a great field i love this field there's so much about it that's great first of all just the knowledge of the anatomy and physiology which i've always loved but the fact that it's it's just a continuous frontier mm -hmm all the time the science is coming out with magnificent things for all parts of the body and as we're as we're living to a longer age and of course we remember that early on a uh, lifespan might have been 30 40 years mm -hmm. 50 mm -hmm. years uh, i just watched uh, a youtube video with a woman who was i think 104 Maybe she was 108. I think it was 104, and she was viable and vibrant, playing the piano and talking about her life. It was wonderful. Uh, but as we start to grow older as a species, more and more things are going to happen to us. So some of this is just the fact that we're living longer, mm -hmm. but also uh, there has to be a concern for toxins in our environment. Uh, and an awareness of those toxins and hopefully trying to do our best to avoid them when possible, making choices for this kind of a product versus that kind of a product or this food versus that food. And the area that we have to be most careful is marketing. And all of the marketing that is done to stimulate our brains into thinking certain ways has, we have to have an awareness about how our brains are thinking and why we're compulsively reaching for this product versus that product. And even sometimes we know the product isn't as good for us. So I think we have to be aware of that. The other day in the market, they said, why are you spending so long reading the ingredients? It's organic. And I said, yes, but did you read the other items in the ingredient? <laughs> I didn't know peanut butter could have so many ingredients. <laughs> Shouldn't it just be ground peanuts? <laughs> and some butter. And absolutely no butter. Of course not. It's right. peanut butter. It's the cream of the crop. No butter necessary. It tastes so yummy. <laughs> right. So, well, it took, a long, it took a long time before we even had labels that we can read. That, that yes. was exactly what I'm speaking about. Mm -hmm. A group of people got conscious and decided that it was important, not just for them, but for everybody, mm -hmm. their friends and neighbors and relatives to know the same things. Well, now people have worked very hard on getting labels. Uh, and the people that are doing the producing are very smart also. They have abilities to put things on a label that will make it sound one way, but it really isn't that way. So you, not only do you have to read the label, but you have to be smart about reading the label. There are different ways, I, I think I've spoken about this before, where they have, they can round off to zero. So if there's a, under a certain amount of a certain chemical within uh, a product that has to do with an individual serving size, 
if there's less than a certain amount, then they can either not name it or name it as zero. And that's not true. So let's make a, an example. I'm, I'm getting completely hypothetical here. And let's say there was 0 0.05 milligrams of arsenic in one serving of a cookie <laughs> that, that you might eat. So technically, that might not be a big deal because it's so little and our body, our body's liver and other organs can handle that and detoxify it, which the body does every day amazingly and magnificently. Mm -hmm. And thank you, body. Yeah. But the problem is that in that advertising that label, they were talking about one serving. Now, I don't know about you, but most of my friends don't ever have a serving of one cookie. <laughs> so if you end up and you're sitting there watching the final four and you're eating cookies and you suddenly realize you just had 30 cookies, well, each one of them has 0 0.005 of arsenic and the total now may be an actual, <laughs> you know, amount of arsenic that could hurt you. Now, I'm not right. saying there are any cookies with arsenic, but I'm using the example that the the industry has been allowed due to a law that says if it's not this amount, you can claim it as zero. Mm -hmm. wow. So all, all of this, even knowing that we have labels and then reading the label and understanding, it's over almost too overwhelming. It is. It it's is. It's almost too overwhelming. And we we need to count on our government, our society to do the right thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we always, of course, have to worry. I don't want to get political in a magical medical tour, but there are different motives. Of course. <laughs> Those of us who've been around for a while realize that. <laughs> but, you know, that's a, a, an idea that is just uh, what you just said actually brought up an idea for, for me that I've been wanting to do for a while. And now with this transition here at Yoga Hub, um, it'd be so wonderful to have that resource page where, you know, we can uh, share links with, um, with our audience that they can go in to, to actually become more aware. There are so, so many groups out there right now that are um, sort of lobbying for change. And I think it would be great to have that on some part of Yoga Hub so that people can click right through to it and support those groups and, and uh, become more aware of what's going on. I think on one of my blogs, uh, I talked about uh, labels and reading labels, and I put some uh, websites where people can go where it can actually teach you how to read a label and to look at the way that they do things and how they set it up so that you'll you will be able to go more quickly and read a label with, mm -hmm. with more consciousness and intellect and uh, back up more mm -hmm. quickly because it's very easy to just get uh, low into, as soon as you see words that have more than 15 consonants in them uh, and they're scientific things, sometimes the mind can just blur over. Yeah. That, and it's it's much easier to just go and say, okay, how much protein? Right. You know, how, how much sugar? How much carb? You know, what do I need? 
Yes, that, 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 that's okay. It's the, it's the ingredients that I can't even pronounce. That's what worries me. It's like, what is that? Right. <laughs> what is that and, in my tofu now? <laughs> and what is it doing to my uh, pancreas? There you go. You're going to be thinking about the pancreas now. You know, the pancreas, by the way, is uh, when you go to a restaurant and order sweetbreads. Yes. I love those. Yes, you are eating endocrine system. It, they are so good. I, I <laughs> What's your favorite way to prepare them? Oh, they, they, there's one restaurant actually has it seared really nicely with a beautiful balsamic vinegar sauce on top. That's it. Nice and clean. <laughs> okay, the magical cooking show. Well, there you go. So, well, thank you, Glenn. I think we're, we're at the top of our hour right now, and I know that you and I can go on and on and on because of the mysterious world of med medicine. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, and thank you for, for um, really filling us and up with more knowledge, the simple awarenesses that we have to keep in our daily lives to actually make a change and make a difference in each of our bodies, you know. And I, I think, you know, the one thing I have to say that really jazzed me about each of our episodes so far, each doctor that has come on has mentioned the one through line, which is exercise. Each individual that has come on has said the same, that one through line that links them all together is like, Diet and exercise. Yeah, and I think there for me there was one more. I, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, they are all talking about exercise and nutrition, but the other one that I seem to be thinking is education. Yep, absolutely. They all seem to be saying that, and you know, as part of this show, the my goal is to bring the heart and soul of medicine to everyone. Mm -hmm. to, sh to show that the people that practice medicine and healing are heartfelt and soulful people that are doing good things or trying to do that. And again, we have to be careful of marketing against them, depending on uh, motive again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But also, the second part of the show is to bring an awareness and a consciousness and education to help people become more proactive in their own health care. And the best way to do that is to be armed with knowledge. Absolutely. I agree. Well, we're excited to continue this program, Dr. Woolman. And uh, I look forward to coming together with you again next week. Yes, and it should be another exciting tour of the a new quadrant in the healthcare galaxy. Yay! <laughs> Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. Namaste. Many blessings.